The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. You guys can go ahead and have a seat. As you just heard, we're going to be continuing this morning our journey and our trek through Mark uh, chapter 7. And what we really have before us and what we'll see even next week is uh, there's several sections, verses here. And even though we're jumping out of chapter 6 into chapter 7, that chapter division there is really sort of false in the sense that what we have last week with the disciples and the crowd and their interaction with Jesus and the miracle of him walking on water, the interaction of Jesus this morning with the scribes and Pharisees, and the further interaction of Jesus next week, they're they're all blending and, and smashing in together. And what we're going to see this morning as Jesus begins to interact with these religious leaders of the day, these scribes and these Pharisees, Mark is going to show us that the opposition to King Jesus, all that he's saying, all that he is, it's just slowly ramping up and ramping up, moving us ever closer to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ in the latter chapters of Mark. And so what we're going to see this morning is that opposition to Christ, it's going to bump up a notch. And as we focus on this opposition to King Jesus, what Mark is going to show us is that there are people in this world who have hard hearts towards the things of Christ. And what we're going to do is we're going to focus in on the characteristics of a hard heart whenever it is left unchecked. And so let's pray and ask for the Holy Spirit to turn on our hearts, turn on our minds as we engage with the Scriptures to see what these characteristics look like. Spirit, we ask for you to come and to do only what you can do, which is magnify the name, 
the resurrected Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We need You, Holy Spirit, to sharpen our minds as we engage with the Scriptures. We need You, Holy Spirit, to take the hammer of God's Word and to smash our stony hearts so that our hearts would be receptive to the things of Christ this morning. Revive our hearts with the good news of God's grace. Would you take our hard hearts and make them soft so that we see our pure and absolute need for the saving work of Jesus Christ to be applied to our lives. Holy Spirit, I cannot do this. I'm incapable of making this happen. So we ask that you, by your sovereign power, would come and magnify the only name worthy of being magnified, the name of Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, come and fill us now for the namesake and the glory of King Jesus. Amen. What I want to do for you right now is describe to you a prospective member of a church. And as I describe this person, I want you to notice how the life of this prospective member is defined by the good things of God. This prospective member is going to attend every church service, including all the special events that are put on by the church. He's going to go on mission trips, this person, and he's going to have a passion to share the gospel. He's going to give money to the church. He's going to sing worship songs on Sunday. He's going to be faithful to read his Bible. And he's even going to go so far as to do whatever is necessary in order to memorize Scripture. If you ask him to pray in the corporate worship gathering, he's going to be happy to do so. If you talk to him about the things that he believes, his theology, you're going to find out that his theology is completely orthodox. He holds to the sufficiency of Scripture. He firmly believes in the realities of heaven and hell. He never gets drunk. He's not addicted to porn. He never uses profanity. He's a family man. He loves his country deeply. He weeps on the 4th of July. He even votes the right way. You go to his workplace. You talk to people at work. He's a stellar example that every boss would like to have in the workplace. And if any man had ever earned the right to go to heaven, people would say, this is the man. But sadly, this is a man who is headed for hell. Because as we said last week, it is totally possible to be this kind of person. To be someone who fills their life to the brim with good and right Jesus stuff. To see Jesus, yet all the while failing to truly see their deepest need, the deepest need of their soul, can truly be satisfied in Jesus. So here they are, doing all these things, looking pristine, awesome, phenomenal on the outside, 
fluent in Jesus' talk, fluent in Jesus' song, fluent in Jesus' stuff. But whenever you peel back the veneer of their life and you peer into the very heart of the matter, their soul is as far from God as it could possibly be. And for this reason, that kind of man is going to stand before God on that final day and find out that for all the good that was in his life, he will not spend eternity with the Father in heaven because his heart was far from God. He had a hard heart towards the things of Christ. Now, if you remember last week, we touched on this idea of having a hard heart. And there was a contrast between Jesus, as he interacted with the crowds and the disciples, there was a contrast between the way the crowds reacted to Jesus and the way the disciples reacted to Jesus. If you remember, for the crowd, they truly saw Jesus for who he was. He is the compassionate shepherd. And as they saw him as the compassionate shepherd, they saw he's the only one who can care for my needs. He's the only one who can meet my needs. And so they run to Jesus and they lay their needs down at his feet and the compassionate shepherd cares for their needs. In contrast to the crowd who truly saw Jesus for who he is, the compassionate shepherd, the disciples have an interaction with Jesus as he walks on water before them, displaying his glory, displaying that he's the Lord of creation as he seeks to pass them by in the boat. And what we notice is that the disciples in that moment see Jesus, but they fail to ultimately see Jesus. And Mark tells us it's because their hearts were hard. And as we roll into, Matthew, or into Mark chapter 7, it's that doorway of having a hard heart that we step into our verses this morning because here in a little bit in verse 6, Jesus is going to look right at these Pharisees and scribes and say, just as the disciples in that moment had a hard heart, so here are a group of people who are living and happy to live with hearts that are hard towards the things of Christ. And so the question this morning we've just got to ask is this. What happens if a hard heart continues unchecked? What happens if a person continues down the path of day in, day out, week in, week out, month in, month out, year in, year out, doing the Jesus stuff, singing the Jesus songs, reading the Jesus books, doing the Jesus thing, seeing Jesus but failing to see Jesus because as they're filling their life to the brim with Jesus stuff, the reality is this. Their heart is hardened towards the things of Christ. Jesus is ultimately having no significant impact on their heart and soul. What happens if a person continues down this path of seeing Jesus but failing to truly see him because their heart is hard? Or maybe more importantly, the question we need to ask is this, how can I know if I am this person? How can I know if I'm this person? How can I know if I am guilty of seeing Jesus yet failing to truly see my need for Jesus. And it's as we turn to our verses that were just read for us this morning, Mark says the answer to our questions are found in exhibit A before us. 
You see, the Pharisees and the scribes, when you interact with them and see the way Jesus interacts with them in the Gospels, they are exhibit A. They are the supreme example of what it looks like to slide into that place where you become comfortable with just seeing Jesus in the externals, but you actually fail to truly see Jesus in a way that says, I need him and him alone. If you want to see people who have slid to that path and are happy to continue down that path day in, day out. It is the, the Pharisees and the scribes. It's the religious leaders that Jesus interacts with in the Gospels. So it's almost as if Mark is saying to us, listen, if you want to learn the characteristics of a hard heart that goes unchecked, then all you've got to do is look no further than this interaction with Jesus and the religious leaders of the day. So the first characteristic we see is this. The person who sees Jesus but fails to truly see Jesus will believe they are right with God because of what they do. They're going to believe they're right with God because of what they do. So starting in verse 1, if you just look in your copy of Scripture, Mark begins... He tells us that when the Pharisees gathered to Jesus, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. If you skip over verses 3 and 4 and your eyes scroll down to verse 5, Mark tells us that seeing these things, seeing how the disciples were doing this thing, which was sort of stoking the ire of the Pharisees and the scribes, it prompts them to ask a question to Jesus. Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? Why is it that they eat with defiled hands? Now, at first glance, whenever you just lay your eyes on verses 1 through 5 and just specifically those verses that you read, it looks like the religious leaders, the Pharisees, and the scribes are completely making a mountain out of a molehill. I mean, after all, the whole situation just appears to revolve around this sort of hygiene issue. Like the, the religious leaders show up, they gather around Jesus, it comes time to eat, and so some of the disciples just go off and start eating without washing their hands. I mean, you read this, and, and we, in our context today, we just sort of shrug our shoulders. We're like, I mean, like, what's the big deal? Like, who cares, you know? Like, are, are the Pharisees and the scribes getting bent out of shape because someone's taking their nasty hand before they wash it and, like, dipping it into the chip bowl? Like, man, that's almost as guilty like, like, as, as the double dip. Like, are they just getting bent out of shape because it's like, I don't want your grubby hands on the food that I'm going to put in my... Is it a hygiene issue? Is it like soap and water kind of issue? And what we're tempted to do is to just look at these kinds of interactions that Jesus has in the Gospels that just seem so out of context to today that we just shrug our shoulders and go like, man, like, let's just get on to the more important things. But what happens is if we fail to understand what's going on here in this context, we miss a huge thing that Jesus is trying to teach us. See, what we need to understand is that for the Pharisees and the scribes, the washing of hands before you eat, it had nothing to do with hygiene. Nothing to do with hygiene, but it did have everything to do with holiness. You see, if you go down to verses 3 and 4, this is where I'm thankful that the Holy Spirit led Mark to give us a little bit of a background information to why the religious leaders are getting all bent out of shape. 
And he explains why some of the disciples choosing to eat with unwashed hands is such a big deal. It's right there in verses 3 and 4. He tells us the Pharisees and all the Jews, here's what they do. They do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. Even when they come from the marketplace, Mark says, what you need to know is, they, is that they do not eat unless they wash. And not only are they fastidious in the washing of hands before they eat, but this tradition of this elders, this body of teaching and commentary on the things of God, even has rules down to how you are supposed to wash the cups you drink out of, the pots you cook with, the copper vessels that are involved with the eating, so much so that they even desire for you to wash your dining couches, the furniture you're sitting on, even when you're eating your food. That's how fastidious they were in striving towards this whole washing thing. And again, we have to remember that this is not an issue of hygiene. The proper washing of hands as established by the tradition of elders that had a very specific purpose, namely establishing the need for spiritual cleansing. You see, the religious leaders rightly understood this thing at least. That unless you are spiritually clean, you cannot be in the presence of a perfect and holy God. It can't be done. And so in Jewish life, all this religious washing it really did begin with good intent. The washing of hands served as a kind of visual aid that would remind the Jews that if they were unclean before God, they could not enter into His presence unless God, by His grace, made them spiritually clean. They would be cut off from Him because of their sins. So if you think about it, this reminder that came to the Jewish people as a form of hand washing that's just it just was not a bad thing it really wasn't it was designed to go man as you're sitting there washing your hands it was to be this outward reminder that as i'm doing this there's a thing in my life that is even more dirty and unclean than my hands and it's my heart and as I'm doing this, what I'm supposed to do is go, man, God, I, what I, I need you to do is the same way like I'm putting soap and water on my hands. I need you to scrub clean my heart that is stained with sin. And the washing of hands was set up with that intention of going, every time you do this, let it be a reminder, God, I need you to save me by your grace. I need you to clean me by your grace. I need you to make me holy by your grace. But the problem is that over time there was a drift. And with this drift, the washing of hands no longer served as a reminder that we need spiritual cleansing all by God's grace. Rather, the washing of hands turned into a way to earn God's grace. You see, in other words, right standing with God It was no longer by God's grace alone. It was now based solely upon what you did. So if you were to keep up with the religious rules as established by the traditions of the elders, then these religious leaders would come along and go, you're doing a good job. Of course you're going to be acceptable in the eyes of God. Of course you've earned His grace because you're doing all these external religious rules and you're keeping them superbly. But if you failed to observe the rules, then you would find yourself on the outside of God's grace. 
So by the time Jesus has this interaction with these religious leaders, hand-washing and all of its good intentions, it had devolved into that thing you had to do if you wanted to earn God's favors. So if you could just sit down with the scribes and Pharisees, if you could just sit there and talk to them about this thing they were so fastidious in, the washing of hands, and just ask them, listen, just unpack for me, why do you go through this ritual? Why are you so bent on making sure people and yourself wash their hands? Why? They would answer, well, we do this because, of course, this is how we earn God's grace. By our doing, this is how we stay good with God. You see, if they were to come in here on Sunday morning, what they would not sing is the old hymn, My Hope is Built on Nothing Less Than Jesus' Blood and Righteousness. They would robustly sing, My Hope is Built on Something Else Than Jesus' Blood and Righteousness. To them, Jesus was a nuisance to be done away with. He was a religious fraudster that needed to be shut down. But what they failed to see is that their only hope of right standing with God was standing right there in front of them. And the fact is this. Believing that you can become right with God because of the religious things you do or the certain things you don't do, it's not a first century Palestinian religious leader problem. It's not. It is a 21st century Springfield, Illinois, those of us sitting in this room kind of problem. See, there are modern day Pharisees in abundance around us. There are men and women who are sitting here this morning trying to earn God's grace with their own version of hand washing. They're sitting here thinking that if I just do these certain things or if I don't do these certain things, this is what's going to put me in right standing with God. And this is very possibly a reality for you this morning that you are this person. But only for you, your hand washing isn't hand washing per se. For them, the thing that they were doing in order to make themselves right with God is hand washing. Your hand washing might look like something else. For maybe you, it's just the good things you do. That's your hand washing. If I just do good stuff, I'm going to earn God's favor. Or maybe for you, your hand washing is all the bad things you don't do. You're keeping this running tally so one day you can stand before God and go, look at all the stuff I didn't do. That's your hand washing. Or maybe your hand-washing is you striving to be that good person. Or maybe your hand-washing is your work at being spiritual. Or maybe your hand-washing is just your belief like, you know what, I'm just really not that bad. I love my wife. I pay my bills. I give my taxes on time. I show up to church. I sing some songs. I give money. I'm not that bad, especially when I look around and compare myself to other people who are really, really bad. And for you, that hand-washing isn't necessarily the physical act of washing of hands, but the common denominator between you and the Pharisees and the scribes is the same. You are banking your acceptance with God on the things you do. Trusting that if I come and stand before God on that final day, what I'm going to do is reach into my pocket and slap out this laundry list of things done or not done and saying, God, did I not do 
And because I did not do or because I did, that is my basis for getting into heaven, right? Modern day Pharisees abound. And like the religious leaders of Mark 7, because you believe that you can be right with God because of what you do, sure, you're seeing Jesus. I mean, after all, you're not overtly antagonistic toward him. But ultimately, you see no real need for the grace that's found in him alone. Now, the insidious thing about believing this, that you can become right with God because of what you do and that your acceptance with God on that final day is going to be because the things that were good are going to outweigh the things that are bad, is that on the outside, the person who gives themselves over to this thing, they look phenomenal on the outside. They look perfect. They're the religious guy. They're the Bible-carrying girl. They're the scripture-quoting person. They're the one who prays or the one who shows up at church or the ones giving. They're the ones doing all the Jesus stuff. But the insidious thing is that it's a shallow veneer that's only skin deep because at the heart of the matter is their heart is far from God. And so as Jesus turns to answer the religious leader's question, they pose the question, listen, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders but eat with their defiled hands? Jesus is going to answer their question, but he's not going to answer it in the way that they want. And in the response of Jesus to their question, he actually gives us the second characteristic that we need to see, and it's this. The person who sees Jesus but fails to truly see Jesus, they just flat out have a heart that is far from God. This is the central problem with the Pharisees and the scribes. And I think it's the link between our episode of Jesus this morning and what we saw last week. The, the disciples did have a hard heart in that scenario, but they are on a trajectory, as we're going to see in Mark chapter 8, where God in Christ is showing grace to them because they are struggling and they're wrestling with them. Notice that Jesus doesn't screw these guys to the ground, the disciples, with their hard-heartedness. But here, these Pharisees and these scribes, they have come to that happy place where they're just so willing to look at Christ and say, we see you, but we refuse to see you. And they are leading people astray as they seek to walk in a way that says, we look great on the outside, but really our hearts are void and far from God. And Jesus reserves some of the most pointed words in Scripture for these men who are leading people astray. And so Jesus looks at them and says, here's the answer to your question. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So Jesus responds by calling the Pharisees and the scribes hypocrites. In the ancient world, hypocrites were actors. And instead of wearing makeup to represent the character they were playing, these actors, these hypocrites, would hide themselves behind a mask. And so the real personality of that actor was hidden temporarily as there was just sort of this thin veneer of a mask sitting in front of their face. 
And Jesus looks at these religious leaders, these men who think they will be made right with God because of the things they do, and he says, this is exactly what you guys are doing. Their lips are saying one thing, but their hearts are speaking another language. In public, they play the part of men whose hearts are devoted to God when in fact their hearts are devoted to someone else themselves. Again, all their godly doing, it was skin deep because at the core, there was no genuine love for God. It was simply self-love with a thin veneer dressed up as God love. And so Jesus reserves these pointed words, looking at them, saying, And Isaiah, when he was talking about these hypocrites, he's like, This is being fulfilled in you guys. They have the externals of religion down pat. They are experts at honoring God with their lips. They are professionals at worshiping God out loud. But in the end, Jesus says, your worship is in vain and your lips that are outwardly giving honor are actually offensive to the ears of God. And it's all because their heart is far from God in love with the commandments of men. In short, the phrase that best describes this situation is that they were devoted to behavior modification minus heart transformation. They loved to modify their external behavior to look phenomenal in the eyes of others. But when it came down to it, their heart was as stony and stained with sin, untransformed by the grace of God as it possibly could ever be. In essence, these men had just become experts at modifying their external behavior. So much so that from the outside in, it looked as though they had it all together. I was chatting with Brady this past week. He he gave a phrase that I love. He's like, no one's going to out-religion the Pharisees. That's true, man. So much so that you go back into Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is like, man, if your religion doesn't outsurpass the religion of the Pharisees, and he's like, you ain't got nothing. These guys are going hard after religion. But that's all they've got is an external religion. No heart transformation. See, what they failed to realize is that behavior modification is not what God is after. Our God is after the heart. Romans chapter 8, Paul calls the Father... He who searches hearts. And what we learn is that he who searches hearts is concerned with the total and absolute surrender of your heart. 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, we learn that it is man who looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So to satisfy yourself with day in, day out, week in, week out, month in, month out, mere behavior modification minus heart transformation, is to satisfy yourself and to put yourself in one of the scariest places to be found in all of Scripture, and that's Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Listen to what Jesus says over here on the tail end of the Sermon on the Mount. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. If you were just to stop right there, that's scary. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven. 
But let me tell you about the one who is going to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So what you start to see now is this reality of Isaiah that Jesus is tapping into in Mark chapter 7 is working itself out here in Matthew chapter 7. Okay? Just because you are a professional at honoring God with your lips, going around saying, Lord, Lord, he's my Lord, I love the Lord, I sing songs to the Lord, I pray to the Lord, I do all this Lord kind of stuff. Jesus says, if you're just a Lord, Lord kind of guy, but the reality is that your heart is so far from me that even the will of the Father and the desire of the Father who is in heaven has no impact on your soul, it doesn't matter how much you say, Lord, Lord, but you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven unless your heart has been transformed by me. And so he continues on in verse 22 there, Matthew chapter 7, on that day, on that day of judgment, on that day you stand before King Jesus who will judge the hearts of men. Many, he says, Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many mighty works in your name? And you see what they're doing here, don't you? They're arguing their works before God. And Jesus is saying it doesn't matter how emphatic you were that these things you were doing in my name were, the fact is this, your heart was not transformed by faith through grace. It just wasn't. And so here you are standing before your God, having spent your entire life prophesying in his name, going around telling others about Christ. Here you are living a life For the name of Christ that is marked by casting out demons, doing whatever you can to see the dark kingdom of Satan pushed back. Here you are doing many mighty works in your name. And Jesus says, you will come before me on that day. You're going to say, Lord, Lord, did I not do trusting in your doing? And Jesus is going to look at you on that day and say, depart from me. I never knew you. Those are some of the scariest words that should be shaking you in your boots right now. Because my fear is that some of us are here in this room who are standing in this place of Matthew 7, Mark 7. Trusting that you're going to stand before God on that day and go look at all my doing. And Jesus is going to say, I don't care about your doing. I cared about your heart. And the one thing you did not do was... Give me your heart. That was the one thing. And it didn't happen. It wasn't transformed. You didn't come to me by grace, through faith. And so Jesus is going to say, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Of course you honored me with your lips. That's the thing that gripped me this past week, looking at Mark 7. Jesus doesn't say they're going around being complete jerks about the things of God. They're not going around dishonoring the name of God. They are actually bearing a level of honor to God. They honor me with their lips. Pure and absolute honor. Hearts far don't know me. doesn't matter how much honor is coming from the externals. The core of their being was so far from God. Worship, superb, Jesus says, in vain. Because you love the things of this world, the teachings of men, you don't truly love me. 
You see, when you read Matthew 7, the implication in Matthew 7 is that the hope of salvation for this person, the Lord, Lord person, was in the things they had done. It was not in the resurrected Son of God. And so the translation, as you bear that truth onto Mark chapter 7, just comes down to this. Their behavior was so well modified that they were able to honor God with their lips all the while their heart was just far from Jesus. And so Jesus, he's going to continue in his interactions with these religious leaders. That's what we're going to see in verses 8 through 13. And as he does so, he shows us one last characteristic not only is the person who sees Jesus but fails to truly see Jesus as their heart from God, not only are they trusting in what they do to make themselves right with God, it's this, they're just so happy, so willing to manipulate God's word for their advantage. And that's what you see in verses 8 through 13. Look at what he says starting off there in verse 8. You leave the commandment of God, he says, and you hold to the tradition of men. Jesus said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. And then you cast your eyes down to verse 13. He charges them again with making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. See, for all practical purposes, these religious leaders, the word of God had become subservient to the words of men, to the philosophies and the ways of thinking of men. Man-made rules... And regulations became the object of obedience while the plain commands of God became low to the point of being negligible. And notice the progression as you start at the end of verse 7 and work down to verse 13. First, what they do is they teach doctrine, the commandments of men. Well, that's a good philosophy. Let's begin to teach that. And then the next step is this, is that they then leave the command of God and begin to hold to the teachings of men. And now that they have loosened their grip on the word of God and are clinging to the commands of men, verse 9, they now come to the place where they go, do you really need God's word? And they said no, and they begin to reject the commandments of God. Ultimately, bringing them to the place, verse 13, where they just flat out make void the word of God, saying it's just a non-issue. You don't even have to deal with it. So beginning with a willingness to downplay the word of God and to upplay the words of men, they bought into the age-old lie of Genesis chapter 3, which is what? Uh, Did God really say? Did God really say that? I mean, when God says, honor your father and mother, I mean, does he really want us to honor our father and mother? When God says, whoever reviles father or mother must surely die, ah, man, I don't know. Is that really the issue? When God says this about our human sexuality, is that really what he's about? When God says this about drunkenness, is that really what he's on about? When he says this in the way men and women relate to each other, is that really what he's on about? Is this really what he means about marriage? Is this, it's, the, it's the Genesis 3 lie put forward by Satan in the garden? Did God really say? And here these men are proposing themselves to be the men of God, but over here on the side sort of going, ah, I don't really know if he, if he really means that. And so what they did was they manipulated the word of God for their own advantage. And it's because of this that it flat out explains why Jesus had such stinging rebuke for these men. 
for all their proud boasting and their traditions. They were just living in disobedience to God's Word. And for the good of their soul, this happy acceptance of willingly manipulating the Word of God, it needed to be exposed. And so Jesus comes and exposes it in their life, just as our willingness to monkey around with God's Word needs to be exposed as well. The Word of God is not our play toy. Where we go, the Word of God, I'm going to pick and choose the things that I believe, and I'm just going to put it low and put my thoughts above the Word of God. The Word of God is the self-revelation of God, sufficient for every aspect and every avenue of our life. It is to be the supreme authority in our life, for it is how God relates and talks to us in this day. And our thoughts and our feelings and our emotions are to be subservient to it, not the other way around. You see, in the end, this whole interaction with the Pharisees, this whole interaction with the scribes, It just boils down to Jesus simply doing what Jesus is so good at doing. And calling out and exposing just how hard their hearts had become, Jesus was pointing these religious leaders. And thus, he was pointing you and he was pointing me to the better way. He loves these guys too much to just let them go. You know what? They've got some pretty hard hearts. I'm just going to let them go. He comes at them with very pointed words because Jesus knows that if they continue down this path of hard-heartedness, this path will avoid the cross, which is the very thing they need to see and believe. See, there's no doubt that these religious leaders were resting their hopes for acceptance with God on the assumption that they were acceptable to God because of what they had done. They were seeing Jesus and yet failing to truly see Jesus. But in steps, the compassionate shepherd graciously exposing their false hope so that they can see their need for God's grace alone. So if you hear nothing else this morning, hear this question. What is your hope? What's your hope? When you stand before God on that final day, what are you going to plead Are you going to Matthew 7, the thing? King Jesus, the Lord of glory. Roll up before him with a chest full of bravado. Whip out your list of all that you've done. Saying, because I did these things, that's why I deserve acceptance with the Father. Or like the publican, the tax collector in Luke 18, are you going to come before the Father, tear your clothes and beat your breast, not even dare to be able to lift your head because you're like, I don't deserve to be here. I know what I've done. My only hope right now is the mercy and the grace of a Christ who died on the cross for me. That's my only hope. What are you going to plead, man? Like, don't just brush this off. Please wrestle with this question. And I wish I could climb into your head and just press some buttons and make you consider these things. I can't. But I'm begging with you, please wrestle with this question. What are you going to plead on that final day? You're going to stand before him on that final day. What are you going to plead? What is your hope? Is your hope acceptance in what you do? Is it... The mere behavioral modification, look at how I used to be a crummy guy and now my life's just better and that's my hope. 
Is your hope in the words and philosophies of men, or is your hope of acceptance with God the same as that of the hymn writer who sang, For my pardon, this I see. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my cleansing, this my plea. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. There's that cleansing language. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus can cleanse your sin-stained heart and make you right with the Father. Wrestle with this. What is your hope of salvation? Let's pray. Father, you are the good, good Father. And it is your word that does the exposing work in our hearts and in our minds. And what we need today, Lord Jesus, is a work of exposing that is so beyond our capabilities. And I believe it's intentionally designed to be beyond our capabilities, beyond my capability. There's nothing I can do because if I could do something to just make people believe, then what we could say is salvation rests in the thing that I did. But here this morning, Father, we're begging and pleading that you would do only what you could do. Father, make our hearts burn within us as a result of the words of Christ being spoken this morning. Father, take that single truth. If nothing else remains, take this single truth, that question, what will I plead before the Father on that final day? And would you cause us to wrestle with these things even now? to not brush them aside, that if the Holy Spirit is bearing a level of conviction on our souls, that we would not quench that, but that we would lay ourselves down so that we would be not modified in our behavior, sort of walking out of here saying, I'm just going to pull myself up by the bootstraps. That was a hard sermon, and that's right. I am trusting in myself, so I'm going to go out these doors trusting in my ability to make myself better. God, I pray that you would banish that damnable thought and that you would cause us to not walk out convinced of our own ability to clean ourselves up, that we would fall on our knees and we would plead the blood of Christ as our only hope of being ransomed and redeemed and washed clean. Lord God, help us in these things. With the name of Jesus Christ, our resurrected Lord reigns supreme as a result of what's been said today. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen.